JCC, how you doing today? And it's so good to see you. So good to see you. I miss you. We were gone the last couple weeks. I was, uh, we were up visiting our daughter in the Sacramento area a couple weeks ago. And then last week, I was able to take Jackson and Joe up to man camp, right? When you just say that, you've got to feel testosterone, right? Right there, are. But we had a great weekend. Uh, I got to meet guys from all over Southern California, be encouraged by God's word together. And we're back. And I'm so grateful for just our different areas of ministry at High Desert Church in particular, our guys who teach God's word. I think of our campus pastors two weeks ago um, talking about how we can pray more thoughtfully, more consistently for the people in our lives, as well as last week, Pastor Kurt, great job. What does it mean to encourage one another? That's got layers to it. And he just did a great job unpacking that. So I'm grateful to be back with you, grateful to be in this series as we are talking about how are, what is God said in his word, how we are to behave towards our brothers and sisters. There's a sense of like house rules. This is what God intends for his fam- family, his kids, how they would behave, well, towards one another. So we're diving in and we'll look at another one in just a second. Before we do, just wanna welcome you guys here at Victorville. Glad you're here today. For those of you joining us in Apple Valley today, a big hey as well. My daughter, Elliot, was her first time playing in the worship team today. So uh, make sure you say hi to her. Uh, and then also our folks at Asperia, big hey to you. And then those watching online, we're glad you're with us today as well. Um, I have a favor to ask. I'm going to ask you for four minutes this week, not necessarily now, but later on this week. If you look in your notes, look up on the screen, you'll see we're using this text number a ton. And I love it because it's so readily accessible on our phones. But 64567, the way I just always remember it, if I remember six first and I back it up, 4567 also spells oikos on your phone with the little numbers and letters if you take a look at that. But um, what I am working on is, uh, along with our directional team, Pastor George, Pastor Kurt, we shared with our um, staff and our board a couple weeks ago uh, about some vision initiatives that we've been working on since last April. And so in that process, each of us has a point of responsibility. I have one third of that vision initiative as well. And one thing that would really help me is if you would take a survey for me. So it's just typing the word survey to 64567. It literally will tell you this takes about four minutes. And the first few questions are just about you in general. All this is anonymous. But then as it dials in, it's really asking questions about how you are consistently, regularly engage with the unbelievers in your oikos. And that's really what my vision initiative is about. We'll share more. We'll take the first Sunday of January and the three of us will be sharing those vision initiatives with our church family. But that would really help me so we don't just have anecdotal, well, Todd thinks it's actually backed up by data from our church family the people who responded. So if you do that for me this week, four minutes, just answer those questions. Again, all anonymous, but it'll give us a a bank of information and data that we can use as we're kind of working towards um, some new ideas and new things for the future, which I'm so excited about. Our board and our staff walked away from that dinner, really feeling encouraged, like this is exciting what God's calling us into. So look forward to share that with you in a couple of months. Well, as we're dialing in on this series and we're talking about this idea of what does it mean to 
to, to do life, to walk with one another. We're, we're doing this series, by the way, with real intentionality on a few fronts. One is that we are launching a bunch of brand new groups, a lot of growth groups, through the, the mechanism of Rooted. We've got about 100 people that are in these six different groups that are walking through the Rooted experience. And, and in that, learning what it looks like and, and experience life in community. Along with that, we have a bunch of our current growth groups, about 600 people going through Rooted as well. And again, getting those daily and weekly rhythms and, and doing this all in community. One of the things that's true about Rooted is you could never do it alone. And that's a great, actually, just a buzzword or, or line about the Christian life. You can never do it alone. You're always intended to do this in community. So what the New Testament gives us is a sequence of imperative verbs, directives. And they're always second person plural, so they refer to all of us. Like we said a few weeks ago, we often read the New Testament and think every you is talking about me when most every you, all of Paul's letter to the churches, are y'all. It's all of us. And so these imperative verbs are commands that say, do this thing, love one another, forgive one another, bear with one another, pray for one another, encourage one another. And today we take another step in one another and that of accepting one another, accept one another. And I will say in this sequence, the others, they all have a degree of effort and energy that are required. This though, I believe this one another has a complexity, not so much because of the Bible. I think it's very straightforward from scripture, but I think our culture has made the concept of accepting people very complex. It's got a lot of layers to it. So I'm excited to look at God's word with you and process together what does it mean when we are called within the body of Christ to accept one another. If you have your notes, have those ready to go. If you have a Bible, would you make your way to the book of Romans? We're going to be in Romans chapter 15. Romans is the sixth book in the New Testament. And towards the end of the book, chapter 15 is where we'll pick it up. Let's begin. Number one in our notes, accepting others is to invite them in. This is one of the most basic ways of understanding the original Greek word to accept others is to invite them in, to welcome them. And the verse that we're gonna look at, we're actually gonna look at this verse in thirds. It's literally just one verse we're gonna look at. We're gonna break it down. Here's the first third, Romans 15, seven. Accept one another then. Well, you're thinking there must be something more. That's a really weird way to you know, finish a thought. Accept one another then, and before we can really dive into really what that word means and, and whatnot, we always want to look at context. And this is how the book of Romans goes. It begins in chapter one, makes sense, and goes till about chapter 11, building a case. Paul is building this case. And at the end of the day, the, the kind of foundational point is this. Every single one of us, every person on the planet, and he, and he really puts people in two categories, Jews and Gentiles. And that literally just means Jews and everybody else. All of us have the same basic need, whether there was a, a law that was given by Yahweh on how to live according to his ways, or people who live completely apart from the law, all of them have the same basic problem. They're sinners. The law exposed sin and everyone else living their own way demonstrated they knew that they were living apart from God's design. So as sinners, they need hope, they need salvation that came in the person of Christ and Jesus came once for all 
to do away with the penalty of sin and death. And it is through Jesus and through him alone that we have hope and can be right with God. That's really, if you boil down the first 11 chapters of Romans, that's, and I've way oversimplified it, but that's the basic tenet. Now, before I go further, many of you have been paying attention to the news the last couple days and you realize that just an unprovoked attack uh, from the Palestinians upon the nation of Israel has happened. Looking in uh, the newspaper today, noting that about a thousand people already have been killed. And it's uh, just one of those things that came during a, a religious holiday, celebrating the law, the Torah. And about 50 years ago, a very similar attack happened in a, on a, again, an, a religious holiday. So I just wanna pause. This is a unique people of God. We believe that just like we've sung here at Victorville today, God so loved the world. There is no people that he necessarily loves more than others, but he has used uniquely this people of Israel since all the way back in a promise to a guy named Abraham. So I just wanna pray real quick for that conflict today. Father God, we lift up to you the people of Israel today that are struggling. Life was pretty normal a couple days ago. And as they move towards this religious festival, all of a sudden, bombs uh, blowing up all over in towns, all over their country, has just caused for understandable reason, great concern. So what we pray for, we do pray that there would be a ceasefire, that there would be people who would have um, minds and hearts that would bring peace rather than greater conflict. But God, what every person in that area, both Palestinians and Jews need, is you. And so I pray people who love Jesus and who are boots on the ground in both of those areas of the world, which may not be many at all, I just pray that you would give them the ability to be a people who speak truth and a people who love in a powerful way, just like Jesus does. And so I pray that you would do a work in a day filled with strife in the nation of Israel today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as we process it, that's the major idea going on in the book of Romans. Then it kind of makes a turn in chapters 12 through 16. And what it does, it begins to get very practical. And here was a really needed reason why. You had people who lived with barriers. Literally in the temple, there was a place to which Gentiles could only come and could not go further. Jews would not have Gentiles in their home because they were unclean. So all kinds of barriers between people that now through the blood of Jesus are called to be family, called to be brothers and sisters without the barriers in place. So this group of people had a very difficult time figuring out how are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to walk in unity? Because we have the main thing in common. His name is Jesus. He's the unifying factor. And we are brothers and sisters because of him. But for all my life, I've kept away from you. For some of the ways you look or the things you do, I keep away from you. Now, how do we come together as family? And that's the gist of these last chapters of the book of Romans. How does a family function who had lived divided by walls previously? We get to chapters 14 and 15, and when we're in this mode, now Paul takes on a topic that was especially causing division. And he begins chapter, we read a minute ago in chapter 15, this is how he begins chapter 14 with the same word, except the one whose faith is weak 
without quarreling over disputable matters. That's how he sets up this new thought. It's the same exact word we looked at in chapter 15, accept, invite in, welcome. And, it's, and it qualifies it very interestingly. It doesn't just say accept people. It says it's talking about other brothers and sisters. And it says the one whose faith is weak about disputable matters. That is not a phrase we use all the time and not in church either. It's not a phrase we use probably anywhere. So what is he talking about? When I grew up in church, what we would call this kind of area of things, we call them gray areas, disputable areas. You can use whichever word. And it boils down to this. That there are things that the Bible is very, very clear about. And I'm not just talking Old Testament law, but what Jesus reiterated in the Gospels. These are things that we would call maybe black and white. They have clarity. We are either called to do or to stay away from. But it doesn't solve everything in life. And there's a lot of areas that are in the middle that would be gray. And these gray areas don't have a clear biblical mandate either to engage or to stay away from. So now it creates this system of trying to figure out, well, how do, how do I move forward? And secondly, and most importantly in this case, what do I think of you if you do? This is what was causing a problem. Gray areas where people were engaging in something that God had not been clear on. And as a result, other people were judging them. And saying, oh man, I don't want anything to do with you if you're going to. And listen to some of the issues that they were struggling with in the first century church. There were some people that due to the dietary laws from the old covenant, from the old Testament, they decided, man, I'm not going to eat those foods. Even though God had done something miraculously for the apostle Peter, given him this dream in the book of Acts that says, man, all this stuff is clean now. Don't call it unclean anymore. It's all acceptable. And so the, the apostles are sharing this teaching with people who had formerly been part of this Jewish covenant and, and they're, they're having a hard time stepping into that. So they're like, when they're at a restaurant, they're seeing somebody eating bacon. They're going, bro, what are you doing? And we go to church together. And that person's saying, it's bacon. How are you not eating this? This is great. And it caused problems both directions, both for some who were judging, I can't believe you're doing that, where God's word had made this actually very viable. And conversely, people who had the freedom to step forward and enjoy now are like, well, why can't you, why are you such a downer on my party? So it was creating friction. And that's why Paul needed to say, let me address, but how does he begin even this addressing of gray areas except one another then. He starts out by this idea, do not get sideways, do not start throwing up walls of division over things that don't matter, and it don't matter anything like the main thing that matters, and it is Christ that makes us one. He's the glue. So that's the context where we pick this all up. Now, when we think about that, another area, by the way, um, where this was happening related to even food that had been sacrificed to idols. And you and I hear that, we're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And there had been things that were going to be um, uh, put out in the marketplace and there was a demark. These things just for sale, these things formerly sacrificed to idols and I'm thinking and discounted. And I'm thinking if you were cheap and, you, and especially like think of this, if you just didn't have any context and you don't think that idols have any power over anything, I'm going, I'm taking the 299 version and I don't think anything twice, but someone who had really struggled with that in their past of having been someone who had 
maybe sacrifice foods just like that is really freaking out. Like, how can you do that? Well, these are the kind of issues. They're not the issues we face today, but we'd also be foolish to think that we don't face gray area issues today. Places where God's word has not been crystal clear, lots of principles, but you could really make a case either way. You might take the issue of alcohol. The Bible's super clear about being drunk and being under the control of anything other than the Holy Spirit and your own self-awareness. But outside of that, the use of alcohol seems to be, biblically speaking, a gray area. So for some Christians, they have a glass of wine at dinner and others do not. And what that can become, though there should be able to be that freedom both directions to engage to not, is that when we're together, we get really judgy. And that's what Paul's talking about. People who would smoke and others who would not. Biblically speaking, you're not going to find a verse that says, thou shall not. When it comes to which political party you're a part of, you're not going to find a verse that's going to say this or that. I still can't understand it, but why some people choose to root for USC. I just don't get it, you know? But in Christian love, you get my point. There's all kinds of things the Bible doesn't speak directly to, but here's the thing. As brothers and sisters, what Paul is reminding us of, keep the main thing the main thing. Keep central in the relationship what brought you together in the first place. The fact that Jews and Gentiles were meeting together in some kind of form of worship blew the minds of people in the first century. Whether you were Jewish or not, you knew these people kept to themselves and they did not want to interface with anyone else. And now you're seeing them in, in not just in a worship service, but doing life together in each other's homes. And you're going, what has happened? Paul says, what has happened is that this one and same Jesus has come to include and accept all into his family. Don't throw up the barriers that he came and tore down. I love this verse, it's in the same context, Romans 14, 19. Let us therefore make every effort. That reminds me of a verse that's so important to us at HDC from Ephesians chapter four. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. This doesn't happen naturally. We have to work at it. That's what this phrase is talking about. So when we think then of this specific word to accept one another, it means exactly what we've been talking about, to invite others in, to welcome them, to, um, to include into a group, okay? These are some of the other ways you'll see this same Greek word in the New Testament. It's found 12 times in your Bible. Here's a couple examples. Paul and others are shipwrecked on an island, and this is the way it's used from Acts 28.1. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire, and here's the word, and welcomed, accepted, invited us all because it was raining and cold. And then a directive that the Apostle Paul gives to Philemon, another Jesus follower, who Paul sends a former runaway slave named Onesimus back to Philemon 17. So if you consider me, Paul writing, a partner, accept, welcome, invite in Onesimus as you would welcome me. So these are the ways that these verses are used. And, and we said earlier, right, this whole series of one another's is all about family. It's all about how Christian brothers and sisters respond to one another. Your 
Your default though, when you hear the phrase today, accept one another, we said earlier today, it's a complicated issue in our world today because your default probably went to the the phrase something like, you need to be accepting of others who are different than you. And that would not be in reference to the family of God at all, but just other human beings who live very different lives than you. And you've been told that, that is a mantra in our culture today. That's what makes this complicated because you're seeing the word accept through a cultural lens is very different than what scripture is teaching. And that's what we want to um, look at today and try to get right thinking on as we dive in. This in particular, though, is we're talking about this idea of what does the family of God look like, brothers and sisters who are called to keep Jesus central and live in community that puts him square in the middle. And I will tell you, whether it be church congregations, whether it be a a smaller version of that, like a growth group, the more that those groups have people who don't look alike, the more that those groups have people who don't always think alike, the more that those groups have people who don't vote alike, I think is more and more of a representation of the amazing power of Jesus to bring people together. And who would say, a lot of things might matter to me, nothing matters more than him. And if you have that in common, then we're family and let's walk that out together. This is the way that Paul writes it to the church at Galatia, chapter three, verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God, why? Through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You put him on. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. That would have been revolutionary to talk like that. There is neither slave nor free. Talk about the just realities of everyday life between those two classes. There is neither male or female. The realities of divide, divide um, issues that were between the sexes. All those things are true for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is what unifies you. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So if Jesus has the power to glue people together through what he's done in common for all of us, let's look at how he modeled and exemplified that. Number two in your notes, Jesus is your model regarding how to accept others. Jesus is your model regarding how to accept your example regarding how to accept others. We continue on in Romans 15, verse seven. Here's the next phrase. Accept one another then, how or why, just as Christ accepted you. Now we recognize the Bible is authoritative for us. We believe it is literally God's word to us on how we are to live. And if that's true, here's the wild thing. God could have so easily said, accept one another, period. He doesn't need to go on and tell us anything else. He can just simply give us a directive. But so often God says, accept one another and let me show you how. Let me show you why. What does that look like? It looks like this. And that to me is what's so powerful about scripture is so often God will say the so that. He'll say here's the why. And that's so helpful for people like me who want to know. And so what Paul does, he says, the reason why you can accept one another is because of how you've been accepted. Look at what Jesus did and look in your notes. Here's some of the realities of how you were and who you were when Jesus accepted you. First, it was while we were yet sinners. Romans 5.8, there was no sense of you somehow being morally good enough for God. 
We have all sinned. And so in that state, we became acceptable. Jesus did something that made us acceptable to him. Secondly, as while we were his enemies, not just sinners, but enemies, Romans 5, 10, we were rebels. We were doing our own thing, did not want God to tell us how it was. Third, when we were dead, Ephesians chapter two, verse one says that though you were physically alive, you've been spiritually dead since you came into existence. God needed to bring rebirth into your life. John chapter three is all about that being born again. But when you are spiritually dead, Jesus accepted you. Fourth, when we deserved wrath, two verses later, we weren't just spiritually dead, but we were under the judgment, under the condemnation that was deserved by a holy God. We were deserving of wrath. And lastly, it was not because we loved him first. First John 4 says just the opposite. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And here's the great part, and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. So these were all things that were true of you, true of me, related to who you were when Jesus accepted you. But we need to unpack that. Like, let's, let's talk about what are we saying when we say that? Because we've all see, already seen all these things that were anything but winsome, anything that were um, acceptable, anything that drew God to us, these were true of our lives and our character. So how did Jesus accept us? It wasn't out of merit, like, man, I really want you on my team. It was instead God sending his one-of-a-kind son and not waiting for us to want him, not waiting for us to be good enough, Jesus goes to a cross, dies as the spotless lamb of God who had the power to take away the sin of the world. And watch this, and that's what makes you and me acceptable to God. He doesn't accept us because we're so lovely. He doesn't accept us even because of how loving he is. He accepts us because of the sacrifice that came out of his love for us. And as a result, that makes us people who can be right with God, people who can be included, welcomed, accepted by him. It's so important that we know that. Look in your notes. When we read that Jesus accepts us, it's not based on something we've done to become acceptable, but based only upon what he has done that allows us to be found in his worthiness. It's Jesus who is worthy and when we put our faith in his accomplished work at the cross, we are aligned with him. I love this verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him, talking about Jesus, who had no sin, the spotless lamb of God, to be sin for us. And I didn't even say to take on sin, to become sin in our place. So that, and here's the key, in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. We're not good enough to be received by God, but Jesus is. And when we put our faith in him, when God sees us, God sees his son. That's where our righteousness comes from. And then what that helps you realize is what an incredibly level playing field this is. This is not because I've been trying to be so moral all my life. This is not because I'd always believed in God. None of that. 
It doesn't matter how far or how near you apparently seem to be with God. Those first five things were true of you no matter who you are. And it's Jesus. And Jesus alone who creates the opportunity, who creates the pathway for us to be right and acceptable to God when we place our faith in his accomplished work. That is so important that we grab onto that because that filters into some other things related to this topic and related to then how we are called to be people who accept others. So this is what Paul leans into. The reason you can accept your brother and sister is because how you've been accepted yourself into the family of God. And this is the essence of what he's saying in chapters 14 and 15. Don't oppose the work of Jesus and all that he accomplished in order for us to be united in him, in order for us to be family. Accept one another and be known as a people whose community transcends every barrier because of the wild acceptance of how Jesus accepted you. That's what Paul's saying in these two chapters. Don't let trivial, small things, things that in light of eternity have no meaning or consequence, don't let those get in the way of what matters the most. Not only is it in Jesus, but then the way we can accept one another as a result. I often get this question, it's a great question, and it feels like a trap nowadays. I don't know that it always did, but I'll be interacting with people and they'll ask the question, does God unconditionally love us? Just want you to think about that and think about how you would respond. Does God unconditionally love us? And I remember thinking about that and I remember I was really grateful for a seminary professor who helped give me these kind of lenses to see it in. And this is my answer to you if you were to ask me, does God unconditionally love us? I would say God accepts us exactly where we are. No need to somehow clean up, no need to somehow get the house in order to be acceptable, right where we are in the middle of any degree of filth. God accepts us in that space. But watch this, and this is the cultural distinction, but God does not necessarily approve of how we're living. God loves us unconditionally in that he accepts us right where we are, but that doesn't mean he approves of how we're living. What has happened in our culture, if we have enmeshed those two ideas together, that to accept someone means to affirm everything about them. Biblically speaking, I do not think that's true. I can accept someone and still disapprove because of a biblical basis, not just my own opinion and, and uh, uh, preferences, but I can have an opinion that disapproves of how they're living, but that doesn't mean that we can't have a relationship. And the problem with our culture is when you combine acceptance and affirmation of everything about that person, now all of a sudden it is all or nothing. Rather than being biblically thoughtful and thinking maybe it's not that. Let me show you how it plays out. Parents, grandparents in the room, you're raising a five-year-old and you recognize your child is such an amazing gift from God and you are so incredibly thankful and you have a familial bond and connection that is deeply rooted in this acceptance of a gift that God has given you. 
But to then connect that dot, that acceptance must mean then complete approval of everything Johnny does. Let me tell you, when Johnny is disobedient of you and disobedient of God's will and design for his life, but you just stand back and go, but man, I accept Johnny. Everything he does is gold. Then you go, everyone around you is going, man, you're raising a hellion. And that kid is going to be the most horrific person on the planet. And the reality is none of you do this. That's a completely untenable attitude to take acceptance and complete affirmation and say, that must be what that is. You don't question your acceptance in their family when they disobey, but you are quick to say, hey, that is not in alignment with the way our family rolls. It's not in alignment with God's design. We're going to correct. This, this is what we're talking about. And here's the problem. When we have bought this Kool-Aid and drunk it from our culture that says acceptance and approval are one and the same, then we have the same problem they had in the first century in the church. And it goes both ways. You could probably put every one of us on all of our campuses, everyone online today, in two camps. And the first camp is this. I have come to believe that acceptance and approval are one and the same. So when God says he accepts me, then I just extrapolate, he must approve of everything I do. So who are you? And even who's the Bible to tell me how to live because I know my heavenly father accepts me. And now you've taken a cultural idea and you have worked it back into what scripture clearly does not say. And so the reality is, is that you need not question if God will accept you. What you do need to question is God approve what I'm doing and how I'm living. And God's word is so clear on so many things to say that is according to his design or that is not. That's one camp. I can't believe God doesn't just approve of everything I do because I know he accepts me. The other side of the camp is the same thing, but in reverse, you have people in your life that God has called you to have a connection to, to have a degree of acceptance for whether it be through family bonds, whether it be through the family of Christ, whether it be through oikos connections, whatever it may be. And over here, because you've also bought in that same idea that acceptance and approval are one and the same, then when somebody lives apart from God's will for their life, they're living in an unapproved way, then you write them off and put them at arm's length and now they're not acceptable to you either. Because it's all, it's all or nothing. And the reality is in the family of God, back to these gray areas, it's exactly what Paul is writing against. People may have a freedom to do something that the Bible doesn't clearly state one way or the other. And you are called to look past that preference you have and see what you have in common and accept them even if you wouldn't partake in the same thing. When it comes to unbelieving people in our lives who don't live for it in any way according to God's design, if God has placed them in your life for the opportunity for you to have relational influence, you can accept them as is where they are just like Jesus did to you. But you don't have to approve of how they live. And the more we would unpack this cultural thing we bought into, I think the better off we would be. 
This is how it played out in my life years before this was a cultural thing. I grew up around a guy named Eric, Eric Memory. Eric and I were not real good friends growing up pre-high school. We would be in the same leagues on always on other teams competing against each other. I knew who Eric was. We get into high school. I'm on a team with Eric. I'm in different environments. We roll in the same circles. So I know of Eric more. And Eric's just a normal good guy. Like he's a normal athlete in high school. He enjoys things that other guys do. He does hang out with a crowd who likes to party and living out the flesh like most high school students apart from Jesus do. So that was Eric's life. And I made a volitional choice to go, hey, I know who Eric is, but because of these things in his life, I'm not interested in drawing near to him. And I'm gonna kind of put him at arm's length because he does un acceptable things, unapproved uh, things. That was true of Eric's life until his senior year. And at the end of his senior year, he had other friends who were athletes who loved Jesus. And they really poured into Eric's life and demonstrated not only Jesus's love, but what Eric needed to do as a sinner and not respond in faith to the cross. And Eric gave his life to the Lord at the end of his senior year. I'd heard about that, heard about the buzz and kind of figuring out if that looked legit or not. That summer, we were in the same kind of college group. We started serving at the same church in youth ministry. Eric would go away to a Christian university. I would go to another. We would hang out and go to each other's schools. We'd keep serving together. Eric and I would do stuff together during the summer that was ministry related. Eric was an usher at my wedding. I was a Christian school teacher right out of college. Eric came and shared with my class his journey. And you might look at that and go, man, that's a great story. And there's a lot about it that's great. Eric's still friend today. He's at the church down in Redlands I was involved in before I came back to HCC. I loved getting those five and a half years to reconnect with him and his wife, Julie. But can I tell you what I hate about that story? I hate my posture. I hate the fact that I waited for Eric to clean himself up. I waited for Eric to have Jesus in common before I would move towards him as a friend. I hate that part of the story because that goes against everything we talk about. That's when I tell you that Oikos was revolutionary to me when I came 21 years ago. It's because not only had I never heard it, I'd never lived it. And I'd be glad to be your friend once you put your faith in Christ, but before I'd love to keep you at arm's length. That isn't like how Jesus accepted me though. And that's what's so powerful when Paul uses Jesus's example to remind us how then have we been accepted? We've been accepted through Jesus and that's how we are to use that template in our lives towards others. Let's finish today. Number three, the result of us accepting one another, and I love this, is that God gets the credit. God gets the credit when we will live this way towards one another. Here's the full verse, Romans 15, seven. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order, and here's another um, so what statement or purpose statement, in order to bring praise to God. God gets the credit. 
Another way of saying that in different translations says to the glory of God. And that phrase, to the glory of God or to glorify God, is such an interesting term, guaranteed you don't use it anywhere but other than in church. And typically phrases like that, when we're not sure what they mean, but everyone else around us is still saying them like they know what they mean, it's very intimidating to ask, what does this mean? But a Bible land term like to glorify God gets lost on us, but it's so simple. This is what Piper said. Glorifying God is feeling, thinking, and acting in ways, and I love this, that reflect God's greatness. Thinking, feeling, and acting in ways that reflect, that show off God's greatness. So if we reread that verse, accept one another, then just as Christ accepted you, feeling, thinking, and acting in ways that reflect God's greatness. God gets the credit when we will behave the way that Jesus has behaved towards us. I love this from one of the commentators. He wrote, God's glory was promoted when Christ received us, accepted us as sinners, and it is further advanced when we who are by nature sinners and wrapped up in our own concerns instead receive our brothers and sisters in Christ with warmth and love. I love that. God gets great credit when Jesus accepts sinners. God gets even more when sinners accept sinners. When brothers and sisters accept brothers and sisters. That's so powerful. And that's what the essence of Romans 14 and 15 are all about. Get over yourself. Get over these petty preferences that matter to you, but should not matter like they do because God doesn't care that much about them. But instead, keep leaning into what does draw you together with brothers and sisters, and that's Jesus. I was thinking about this last part of the message and thinking about how I see this demonstrated so consistently. It didn't take long for the name Mike Moore to come to mind. Mike is one of our growth group leaders at our um, Apple Valley campus. And I've known Mike for a long time, both 1.0 and 2.0. And it's at least, I was doing the math, it's gotta be at least a half dozen or more times I've had a guy that I'm connecting with as a pastor that I, I know loves Jesus, but I know needs community. Like, how is he gonna get connected? How is he gonna have that just brotherhood he needs? And I have every time given Mike Moore a call and said, hey Mike, I got a guy who loves Jesus but needs community. What do you think about adding him to your group? And Mike always tells me the exact same thing, unqualified, Please give him my contact info and have him reach out to me so we can get him plugged in. Sight unseen, I don't need to know anything about his story. If you tell me he loves Jesus, he belongs in our group. I love that. That is what accepting one another looks like. It's not the hypotheticals and the theoreticals. It's the reality, rubber meeting the road. This is how we bring people in and how we treat each other like family. And by the way, when we do, we're just getting a tune-up for heaven. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, a group of people who all looked the same, dressed the same, spoke the same, and voted the same. Oh, I'm sorry, I read that wrong. From every nation, tribe, people, and language. People who will be as diverse as you can imagine. 
standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. That is who we will be praising. Jesus, our unifier, the spotless lamb of God is the one who will get the right attention and focus on that day. But we will look out over a sea of people who don't look anything like us. And we will say, God, you are so good to bring people from every background into your family. And I wanna finish with this. I wanna tell you what happens when we do that at our level. That's our future. But in our present, When you demonstrate this kind of accepting of other brothers and sisters, when you keep making Jesus the main thing that draws you together, you have unbelieving people in your relational world, in your oikos who are watching and they see the different paths, they see the different parts of our culture that are included in your group and they take notice because they know that we live more and more in a fractured, divided world than maybe ever before. And they ask, how can that be? And you get to say, his name is Jesus. Let me pray. Father God, I just wanna say thank you. I love that your word gives us truth and even direction on the incredible importance of how we are to accept one another in the same way that we've been accepted into the family through Jesus's accomplished work, we are called to have arms wide open. We are called to invite in and we're called to make you the center. God, let that keep being the culture of High Desert Church. And would you continue to bring, continue to accept here people from all sorts of backgrounds who have the most important thing in common and that we have all placed our faith in Christ. You may be here today and as we talk about this idea of being in the family of God, we talk about this idea that moving from being spiritually dead to spiritual life through spiritual rebirth, you would say to me, Todd, I go to church every once in a while. I know some things about God, but I have never responded to the invitation made by Jesus in the gospel. And I would tell you, you can today. Would you A, admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior? Would you B, believe that Jesus is the only savior available? And we don't say that to say it. We say it because he said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Would you believe that Jesus alone can make you right with your creator and see would you choose? Would you choose to say, Jesus, I put my confidence in what you've done for me, not in what I can somehow do to impress you. Yet I want to live the rest of my days following Jesus' example with my life. You can make that decision today. No hoops to jump through, no classes to attend. It just begins by saying, Jesus, I'm so grateful that you've done what you've done to make me acceptable, to accept me on your terms. I'm responding in faith. If Father, this week, I believe, like you always do, you're gonna give us opportunities 
to choose to accept brothers and sisters or not. You're gonna give us opportunities even to accept others like Jesus accepted us or not. And I pray in those moments, would you take what we have heard from your word today, let that be very fresh in our souls that we might live and apply that truth in a way that honors you. We love you and we pray in the great name of Jesus, amen.